0: Good morning. We're glad you're here with us. It's uh, awesome to start Easter week. Um, And and this next two weeks, we're going to just go into a a brief little series over Easter, um, Fully Alive. Because that's what Easter week's all about, isn't it? It's about being fully alive. It's about, about being dead to our sins through Christ. It's about coming fully alive. And in the spirit of fully alive, I do have an announcement Junior and Danny Rosa gave uh, birth, welcomed their little baby boy. So do we have a picture of him? Because you guys got to see this outfit. If, uh, all right, we gotta, we'll put the picture on the Facebook page. You got to see the outfit he's in like on day one, the bow tie and everything. But it, his name is Nicholas Scarpum Rosa. So we're excited for them and, and we're glad that mom and baby are doing well. So they're a family of five now, ready to start a basketball team. So, hey, as we um, talk about fully alive today, will you do me a favor? Will you stand as we read God's word? We're going to look at Psalm 2 today. That's going to be our text. So you can follow along with me either on the screen or on your, in your Bible or on your phone. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you for this psalm today as we remember your son entering Jerusalem. We thank you for the prophecy of this psalm that that reminds us that from the beginning, he was always going to be the king, and it was all always going to be his. And that that's been true since the dawn of creation and is still true today and it will be true until he returns. And so, Father, we ask that you guide us into living into that today, particularly this Holy Week, as we kick off our journey towards the cross on Friday and the resurrection on Sunday. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you can have a seat. So I have a question. Who went to the Sting game Friday night? Anybody? Yeah, that was fun. It was five nothing, right? Um, anybody going this afternoon? Yeah. All right, we'll see you there. We got tickets. We're going to go. But see, here's the thing. I love getting there early. I like being in the stadium. I like kind of taking in the whole atmosphere and just kind of looking around. I'm really looking forward to a playoff atmosphere, so that should be a little more exciting. Um, but one of my favorite things in any sporting event is the pregame experience. You guys like that? Anybody else like you know, that? The, when the, the sirens are going off as they're getting ready to take the ice, and they got fireworks and the smoke machine, and everybody's going nuts, and, and that entrance is always something. And you you know that the moment that they, your team comes out and they take the ice and the crowd erupts, and everybody's excited, it's like this overwhelming confidence. You, you just know you just know that there's nothing that can defeat you that day, because the entrance matters, right? If you ever played sports, you know how you take the field matters. How you go out matters because you don't want to walk out with nervousness or acting as if you're worried. You, know, you want to you want to go out and say, "I believe in myself, I believe in in my skills, I believe in my preparation, I believe in my teammates. You want to take the field with confidence because you don't want the other team to believe that there's any hope for them, right? You want to walk out as if you know something they don't know. And that's the way we take the field. And see, confidence is a powerful thing, man. When you walk onto the field or take the ice and you feel confident, you know something is going to come your way. You know that you are going to create an outcome that is good and that there's not going to be a bump along the way that can stop this from happening. When we walk into a situation with confidence we can withstand anything that comes against us. But here's the problem with confidence. Sometimes, we feel this really deep sense of confidence in a situation, and we shouldn't. Because sometimes, we don't have anything to be confident in. Now I would bet you that the pre-game, Friday night locker room chatter was the same in both locker rooms. And I would bet you as they took the ice, both teams felt really confident. And the the storm came out, and they felt exactly how the sting did. And the sting knocked the snot out of them. (laughs) And the moment that you go out there, and you've got all this confidence, somebody should have walked in the storm's locker room Friday night and said, I get that you guys feel really confident, but maybe you shouldn't. Could you imagine if we knew the outcome of that game? We would have gone in and said, look, save yourselves the humiliation and the embarrassment. Walk out there with your heads hung knowing you're gonna be defeated. Because you'll look like a fool if you walk out, like you're gonna be the king of the world, and then you're not. Because here's the deal, confidence is about our ability to achieve a desired outcome. Both those teams Friday night sat in the locker room and said, I feel confident in my ability to achieve a desired outcome. But neither one of them had assurance. Because assurance is about my ability to thrive in any outcome. Confidence is what can I do in this. Assurance is no matter what happens, I'm okay. And so for many of us, it's really hard to differentiate between confidence and assurance particularly self-confidence, because we believe we should walk into every situation trusting ourselves, believing ourselves, believing that we can handle any situation that comes, trusting my abilities and my wisdom and my skills and my wits to achieve exactly what I want to happen. I feel confident in my abilities to make this happen. Assurance is about trusting the outcome to the one who holds all the outcomes. Confidence is about making an outcome that I want. Do you see the difference? Assurance is not about knowing the outcome or making an outcome even happen, but believing in the one who holds all the outcomes. That's the difference between assurance and confidence. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he was secure in assurance, not self-confidence. confidence He was secure in assurance because he knew the one who held the outcome and had surrendered himself fully to him. See, self-confidence trusts my abilities to create a certain outcome. Assurance trusts the one who holds all the outcomes. And I think we've confused self-confidence and assurance. And I think we've bought the lie that we're supposed to be self-confident, that I'm supposed to put it out there that I've got everything under control, I can handle anything that comes my way. And you think of all the ways in our culture today that we're told we need to be self-confident. And we hear trash talk in sports and self-praise on social media and entitlement in receiving accolades and and, and, uh, compliments. And then demanding that others only affirm and exalt us. If you question me, you're a hater. If you tell me I'm wonderful, you're building up my confidence, and that's a good thing. See, the quest for self-confidence leaves us fragile and easily offended and extremely quick to become defensive. Because self-confidence tells me I can create any desired outcome. Therefore, if you challenge my self-confidence, you're a threat to me getting what I want. You're a threat to me being happy. You're a threat to me living well. You're a threat to me mattering in the world if you challenge my self-confidence. And so I fight to protect it and to preserve it. And I get on that treadmill that says make more of you so that you can control outcomes so that you will have confidence, so that you will be able to walk into any situation and have it end the way you want. But let me ask you this. What if I come to know the one who holds all the outcomes? If I could know that one who holds all the outcomes and then surrender myself to him, then I would be free to live in assurance instead of having to fight to hold on to self-confidence. Wouldn't that be nice? See, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he rides, and he's riding into Jerusalem knowing that this is the last week of his life. He's riding into Jerusalem knowing how the week is gonna end, and he's doing it with assurance. He's walking into this situation knowing the one who holds the outcome. Because he knows the Father perfectly, he's one with him. And because he has surrendered himself fully to the Father, Those two things bring assurance. Those two things free us from the treadmill of self-confidence. And so in order to become the kind of people who who can go to God and know Him and live in assurance, we must put some effort forth into that. We talk about knowing God all the time, right? And we should. We need to talk about knowing God. We need to talk about embracing God. We need to make knowing God as a person, his nature, his character, and his desires a top priority for our entire lives. We have to know God. But we also need to know God in the sense of what he is doing. What he has in store for us and what he is bringing into our lives. To know him in the sense of I know and trust God. But to not spend time trying to know his plans, to know what he's bringing forth in our lives, leaves us outside of assurance. Because assurance comes from knowing God and knowing what he's doing on our behalf. If you want to live in assurance, you not only need to know God, but you need to know what he's up to, what he's doing on our behalf. Jesus knew that. He knew Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm about the Messiah. It's about Jesus himself. And I suspect that Jesus may have had this psalm on his mind as he was writing into Jerusalem. Because Psalm 2 tells Jesus exactly what outcome God is about to bring about. Tells him exactly what's going to happen on the other side of this week of his suffering and death. Because remember, assurance isn't about trusting my ability to bring about a certain outcome. It's about trusting the one who holds all the outcomes. Jesus on this donkey riding into Jerusalem knew the one who holds all the outcomes perfectly and he fully surrendered to him. And so the outcome promised Jesus in Psalm 2 is this. The promise of Psalm 2 In verses two through four, that all the rage and violence of the kings of the earth would be laughable to him. In verse six, that he will sit on Mount Zion and rule. In verses seven and eight, that as God's son, he will be given the nations as a heritage and the earth as a possession. In verses 10 through 11, that the wise kings will serve him with rejoicing and reverence. And in verse 12, that they will kiss the son and be blessed when they take refuge in him. That's the promise that God gave Jesus in Psalm 2. That's the assurance that he walked into Jerusalem, well, rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with. Now, here's the thing. If he was relying on his self-confidence, like we tend to do, God's promised this, so I must make it go happen then what happens when these kings who are supposed to be raging in violence against him are beating and torturing him? I don't think you would have found that laughable. What happens when his throne on Mount Zion doesn't seem very realistic when he's nailed to a cross on Mount Calvary? The nations as a heritage and the earth as his possession doesn't seem quite possible when people are gambling for your last garment, the last thing you own in the world. And I seriously doubt that rejoicing and reverence of kings was on his mind when he was being mocked by thieves. And I know this, spit in your face does not feel like a kiss. If he believed Psalm 2 was his to bring about, he failed. He knew that everything God promised in Psalm 2 and every other messianic prophecy that God had made, he was going to bring about. God was going to bring that about. It was not Jesus's to achieve. Had it been, he probably would have given up on that Friday afternoon. Had it been, he probably would have said this can never be. He knew God as person, but he also knew God's plans. He knew what God was up to. He could rest in assurance instead of striving in self-confidence to try to bring this about. And so here's the thing. If you want to live in assurance in trusting outcomes to God instead of self-confidence and trying to create outcomes, then you need to know God as a person, not just a body of knowledge. But you also need to know his plans for you and for all humanity. Palm Sunday is about the plans of God that are constant and eternal that don't seem realistic when you enter into that week of suffering that don't seem possible when you're faced what Jesus was faced with. But here's the thing. The only way to know God's plan is to spend time in Scripture with a mind that seeks to know and a heart that longs to understand and with the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. And so if we want to live in assurance as Jesus lived in assurance this last week of his life, the first thing we do is we engage spirit-led study of God's nature and his plan found in Scripture. If you know Christ then you need to know what God is up to. And so that's the first step if you want to live in assurance. And Jesus knew that God's plan for him was to exalt him above all else to make him the firstborn of salvation, to save many through him, to manifest his love for the world through his love for the Son, to make him victorious over death and sin, and in doing so, to free everyone who would trust him. Jesus knew that was God's plan. He knew all these outcomes would be realized. And he knew they'd be realized through suffering and death. Listen to this in Matthew 16. Verse 21, before they go into Jerusalem, from that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The ride to Jerusalem was always going to end in pain, suffering, and death. It wasn't a surprise. And yet He made that ride. He also knew that the pain and the suffering and the death were going to be conquered and he was going to be raised to life. Listen to this in Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, would make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He knew this was coming And Jesus faced all of this, death and suffering, with assurance, knowing that God's plan included perfection through the suffering. He was able to ride into Jerusalem in assurance because he knew the plan and he trusted the one who had made the plan. That's what assurance is. A life of assurance is knowing the one who holds all the plans and trusting him, surrendering to him. How many times have you faced pain and suffering and sickness and hardships and even death with the question, how am I going to overcome this? How am I going to conquer this? How am I going to repair and restore this? How am I, just fill in the blank. Whatever the how am I ends with, It's always a step towards self-confidence, not assurance. It's always a movement from assurance of God's plan and His goodness and His power towards my skill and my ability. It's the storm skating out on the ice Friday night, thinking we got this. Mike Tyson once said, boxer, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that's true. When we are trying to live in our self-confidence, we come up with a plan, and then life punches us in the mouth, and that plan goes out the window. When we're living in assurance, because we know God, we know his plan, and we surrender to him, the punches can keep coming, and it doesn't change anything. What must I do to make this good, or at least better, is always moving towards trusting my self-confidence, my abilities, my wits, my understanding, my talent, my skills. Assurance doesn't ask, "What must I do, but trust what God but trust what God is doing." Assurance never sits and go, "What must I do in this?" It says, "I know God is doing something. He's moving forward." And the answer is always the same. What is God doing? He's doing something glorious. Always the same answer. And we sit and we can go, but this pain isn't glorious. And I would say, yet. But this loss isn't glorious, yet. The suffering isn't glorious, yet. This death isn't glorious, yet. It was on Sunday. Yet is a powerful word of assurance. Can we live a life of yet? If we trust God and live in assurance. In every torturous and painful moment of Jesus' last week, he had the assurance of the Father's yet before him. Always had the assurance of the Father's yet. But they're arresting me in a garden. This isn't glorious yet. They're questioning me and beating me. This isn't going to end well yet. They're making me pick up a cross and walk to my death. I'm not saving anybody yet. Listen to Hebrews 12:2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the yet in that verse? Self-confidence puts us on the treadmill of what if. Assurance leaves us in the hope of yet. I know that sometimes the yet is hard to grab a hold of and it feels safer and wiser to live in self-confidence and try to create an outcome that we think will work for us. I know that. But that is only because we don't have a knowledge and an understanding of the yet that Jesus had. I want to resolve that for you right now. I'm going to help you resolve the yet that is on the horizon for all of us. And that can become the thing that allows you to walk into every horrible, difficult, ugly, painful situation in your life the same way Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And here's the yet. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth There is your yet. No matter what is in your life, that is the yet that lets us say, Lord, bring what you will because I know what the outcome is. That is the yet that allows you to sit on the back of a donkey and ride into the crucible of your own destruction with joy. The joy. That's laid out before Jesus going to the cross is the same joy that's laid out before us in our struggles and difficulties in life. That passage from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, is our glorious yet. We don't have to live in fear of what might come, we don't have to live in exhaustion of trying to do more to control an outcome. We don't have to live in feeling inadequate because we don't have the right skills to make the situation better or know the right people to have an outcome turn this way. We can simply live in the assurance of the yet. Revelation 21 1 through 5 is our Psalm 2. It's the promise that we know God is realizing through our struggles and our pains and our sufferings. It's the promise that lets us ride smack into our sorrow, our grief, our suffering, and do it triumphantly just as Jesus did. This isn't our word of assurance. It's not the only word of assurance that we have. Revelation 21 is just one word of assurance. You spend some time searching your scripture and you will find countless more words of assurance. They're there, they're all over the place. But this is the one that transcends every other stop along the way of our pilgrim's path to our own resurrection life. This week of Jesus' life was his pilgrim's journey to his resurrection. We're all on that same journey. And so I hope you see that the same assurance that Jesus had as he walked into his death, went into facing his death as a a conquering king instead of an unwitting victim, that that same assurance is available to you and me. It begins with knowing and trusting God, but also knowing and trusting what he's promised what he's doing. To do that, we have to engage scripture with a mind that seeks to know and a heart that seeks to understand. The Bible and the Holy Spirit's guidance are essential to this process. If you want to move from self-confidence to assurance, make your Bible a means of knowing God instead of simply a means of knowing about God. That one fundamental difference will be a gateway to living in assurance for you. And here's the other side of the coin of assurance. It's worship. Worship is the seed of assurance that blooms into the fruit of surrender. We have to practice worship because it reminds us of God's nature and it reminds us of his plan. The songs we sang this morning are not about your preference. They're about truth and reality of God. That's what worship is about. Worship waters our faith and our trust and it leads us into a life of full surrender. And so that's the practice I want to invite you into this week. This is the perfect week to practice the practice of worship. It's more than just singing. It's more than just a song. It reminds us that God is glorious and that he has glorious plans for us. That's why we worship. Worship does include songs, but it also includes psalms and silence and walks in nature and solitude with God and prayer and serving our neighbors generously. Worship isn't limited simply to music, worship is simply being intentional about seeing God as He is and desiring to be in His presence. Worship may be your car ride. If in that car age you decide, I want to see God as he is and I want to be in his presence because worship reminds us that there is a glorious yet to come. It reminds us of Isaiah 55:8, 8. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. Why is that freeing? Because now I don't have to understand. I also realize I never could understand that he's far beyond me, that I can trust him in everything that comes. And this is why the seed of worship in spirit and truth bears the full fruit of surrender. And so then assurance is a product of knowing the love of God for me and that he has a plan, a yet for me. That's being brought into existence in every situation of my life and worshiping him for that plan is the practice by which I find assurance. And it's called a practice because I have to practice it. The more I do it, the better I get at it. It's a practice that's more about having something done in me than it is about me doing something. Worship is walking into a space and going, God, I desire to know you as you are and to be present with you. And as I desire that and walk into this space with you, I trust that you will do something in me. I trust that I'll walk away changed. And so I want to invite you into practicing worship this week in all things because worship makes us fully alive. Practice it in your meals and at work and at school and just walking in nature or watching a sunset or seeing a bird, James, right? And enjoying the company of others in sports and reading and yes, even in song. We can practice this discipline of worship. Easter week's a great week to practice worship because this week is such a good reminder of all that God has done and all that he is doing. It's a great reminder of a plan he has for us that will succeed, that will come into fruition even when it doesn't look like it. That there's a resurrection that's going to happen even when we're putting the body in the grave. And so that's why Easter week is a great week to worship. And I want to ask you to practice a lifestyle of worship this week. Just these next seven days, this this week leading up to Easter, just practice a lifestyle of worship. And you can actually kick it off tonight by coming back here into this room at 6.30. We've got 22 churches gathering to have a worship service and a time of prayer. 22 churches in one room. That's phenomenal. So you can practice worship by coming back tonight. We have an opportunity Thursday for you to practice worship and prayer. Come right to the prayer room behind this wall. Between nine and five, this room will be open. Just a time for you to come and pray. Our desire in that prayer service on th- uh, Thursday, that prayer time on Thursday, is to sit with him and watch. You know, Jesus invited his apostles to come and sit with him in the garden and watch him. what did they do? They fell asleep. We're not going to sleep Thursday. We're going to watch. We're going to pray with him. We have a Good Friday service at 6.30 we want to invite you back to. It's just a time to be somber and reflective and empathize with Jesus on the cross. Good Friday, I want to invite you into coming into that service with a mentality, a heart set of, this is my beloved, and look what they've done to him. And to allow your heart and your mind to go to that place of suffering with Him to watch it. And then on Saturday morning, we'll have another service at 11 o'clock. It's going to be more of a corporate prayer time, a time to come together and just seek God together. So this week is the perfect week to practice this discipline of worship, to live in the assurance of God. You know, one of the ways we worship is communion. We worship the perfect Lamb of God and His giving of Himself. We worship the compassion and mercy of God through communion. We also worship the transforming power and invitation to be made into the likeness of Jesus that is communion. As we get ready for communion, you can take your elements out and begin to open them. I want to read these verses from Matthew 26 to you. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Almost every time we see Jesus feeding someone, He does the same three things. He blesses, He breaks, and He gives. So I want to invite you as we get ready to take communion to allow Him to bless you with His presence in worship, not just in this moment, but this week. Allow his presence to be a blessing to you, but also invite him into breaking, inviting him into breaking us, breaking us so that everything that is not of him that's in us just falls away. And worship breaks us. It leaves us in a spot of saying these things can't be. Lord, take this away. And then finally, he gives. Worship is an opportunity for us to give ourselves fully to the Father as one body of believers, and we give ourselves to God in worship. Communion is an act of worship as much as anything else. It's an act of worshiping God for his blessing. It's an act of worshiping the fact that he's changing us, not leaving us the way we are. And it's an act of worshiping him for giving. First giving his son to us and then giving our lives over for the blessing of others and for his glory. So I want to invite you now to to take those elements out and together let's take this bread. Recall the blessing of it that Jesus gave, the breaking of it, and the giving of it on our behalf. So we take that bread together. We take this juice as a reminder of his blood poured out. Part of being broken by Christ is also to be poured out for others, for the glory of God and the benefit of others. And so let's take this together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together as a body and remember your son through this time of communion. We thank you for the blessing that he is to us the blessing that you've given each of us through him. We thank you for the fact that he willingly allowed himself to be broken, Lord, knowing that there was a glorious yet on the horizon, but knowing that doesn't diminish his suffering, doesn't diminish the pain, doesn't diminish the separation he experienced from you on the cross. And so, Father, we we thank you for that. And, Lord, we thank you for giving. We thank you for giving us a path to you, first and foremost, through your Son. We thank him for his giving of himself. But also, God, we thank you that in you we can give up our own confidences, our own striving, our own efforts, and just live in the assurance of knowing you, of knowing your plans, and worshiping you in those things. And Father, I pray that that's what this week is about for all of us here at Temple. That tonight kicks off a week of worship that transforms our hearts. That happens in every moment of our day. It happens when we're together. It happens when we're in solitude. It happens when we're singing and when we're silent. It happens when we're taking a walk or, or even taking a nap, God. But worship would transform us this week into the image of your son we ask all this in his name amen